Disney Decipher, a podcast helping you save money, time, and stress as you plan your Disney vacation. On today's episode, Leslie tells us about her experience at Disneyland Paris and how it's different from the U.S. part. Find old episodes of the podcast at DisneyDecipher.com or anywhere you find podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a positive review. If you'd like to support the podcast, check us out on Patreon.com slash DisneyDeciphered, or you can support the podcast at no cost to you by using me as your travel agent. Get started by emailing josephchung at travelmation.net. If you have any questions for the podcast, email us DisneyDeciphered at gmail.com, tweet us at www.deciphered on Twitter, or find us on Facebook and Instagram, DisneyDeciphered. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Joe from As the Joe Flies. And I'm Leslie from Trips with Tykes. And welcome back to Disney Deciphered. So we are back. Leslie and I have both been traveling, myself in Alaska on Disney Cruise Line, Leslie all over Europe, but specifically as it relates to this podcast, Disneyland Paris, and we flipped the coin. So we're going to start with Leslie's experience in Disneyland Paris first. Before we get to that, you know, if you are a patron of ours, if you support us at patreon.com slash Disney Deciphered, you will have heard our live trip reports from our trips And we want to thank one of our new patrons before we get started today. Holly, thank you so much for your support. And thank you so much to all our patrons. I really do enjoy making those little trip reports. It helps me to process the trip as it's going along. And also it's a way for me to know what's going on with Leslie's trips without uh, having to constantly message her. Indeed, it is fun to record those, even though I am not as good as you are, Joe, at recording them in a timely fashion. Well done. Well, no one knows the actual dates of travel. So just like you know, my Alaska cruise uh, trip reports are all delayed by exactly one week. And so, you know, no one knows the wiser. You know, it's live to us, Leslie. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> all right. So we are here to talk about Disneyland Paris today. Since, you know, it was such a huge trip and ostensibly, you know, we're not just Disney people. We are travel people. Leslie, you want to tell us just a little bit about the skeleton of your trip to Europe? Sure. So we were gone for two full weeks, actually, I guess 15 nights when you add it up. And we headed first to London, spent a full week in London, really just sort of diving in like we rented a flat and, you know, had a kitchen and that kind of thing and got to sort of get a deep dive into the city there. And from there, we Eurostarred over to Paris and we only spent one night in Paris proper, and then headed out to uh, Disneyland Paris, where we spent two nights. And then from there, we hopped a low-cost carrier flight from Charles de Gaulle to Edinburgh, Scotland, and spent four nights in Edinburgh. Um, And the reason we were headed there was my brother-in-law is an actor and had a show that was selected for the French Festival. So mostly just a UK and a little bit of a France trip, um, really just an intro to Europe for my kids. This was their first time to Europe. Uh, We never intended to wait this long, but of course, you know, a couple year delay thanks to an intervening pandemic. Indeed. Yeah. So it sounded pretty great. You know that you were in the United Kingdom because you rented a flat, not an apartment, Leslie. <laughs> See, so, I picked up the lingo already, Joe. Well yeah. done. Well done. Yes. Learned that from my time in Hong Kong. And today, uh, the way we are going to take a look at Disneyland Paris is we're going to compare what Disneyland Paris does better and worse than its U.S. Disney Park counterparts. And Leslie, you have an article up on tripswithtikes.com outlining a lot of this as well and more. Uh, But before we talk about what is better and worse, tell us a little bit about where you stayed, what length of ticket did you buy, 
What were your Disneyland Paris plans in general? Sure. So we stayed at Sequoia Lodge, which is a moderate hotel near Disneyland Paris, one of the on-property hotels. And it's theming, like you would imagine, is much like uh, Wilderness Lodge or the Grand Californian. But in terms of sort of where it falls price-wise and amenity-wise, it's what Disneyland Paris considers a moderate. So not as nice as those two hotels. The way packages work at Disneyland Paris is if you buy sort of an on-property hotel and ticket package, you don't get to select your length of ticket. So if you have a two night stay, you get a three day ticket. So that's what we had. (laughs) And so that's sort of what we ultimately ended up using. Although we did not go for three full days, we had sort of an evening and then a full day and then a morning was how we ended up using the tickets. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot to learn. There was a big learning curve trying to figure out all these different options. And, and you know, I was sort of initially, my, my husband only wanted to go to the parks for one or two days. And we were like, why are we buying a three-day ticket? Why can't we customize this? But that's how it goes. Yeah. In my experience, the ticket prices are not as expensive day-to-day as they are in the United States. You know, for Disney World, for example, we always say it's not until you get to day five, six, or seven that you're really paying very little per day for your ticket. But still, it is weird. Even if it's only $40, it's weird that you have to get a three-day ticket um, on a two-night stay. But uh, this is where I'll say once again that if you're booking hotels at Disneyland Paris uh, and you go through something like Expedia, which sometimes is cheaper, one thing I always had trouble with is when I was buying it and it says tickets are included, I was always like wondering, oh, how many days are those tickets for? Well, again, like Leslie said, the number of days of your tickets is just based on your stay, which also means that Disneyland Paris stuff like split stays and things like that are complicated. But this is not Disneyland Paris deciphered. So we'll end that topic here. And let's get to what Disneyland Paris does better or worse than the U.S. parks. So kick us off, Leslie. What's the first thing that you feel like Disneyland Paris does better? Well, I ultimately felt like Disneyland Paris on the whole had better cut the line options. And I mean, we've talked ad nauseum, Joe, about the hot mess that is Genie Plus at Disney World. It's it's less of a hot mess. It's actually pretty good at Disneyland. But it's a system that requires a steep learning curve that has a lot of tech issues that Disney keeps changing on us. It's really, really frustrating. And I actually really liked what Disneyland Paris had to offer. So let me quickly sort of summarize that for, for folks that don't know, because I didn't know as of a few months ago myself. Before you do that, Leslie, how dare you say Genie Plus is complicated? Disney, while we were gone on vacation, released six very wonderful videos. Six videos to explain three products, Leslie. So take that back. Okay, wash your mouth out with soap. Okay, okay, tell, us okay, about okay. The Disneyland, tell us about the Disneyland Paris options. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, so they have what's called Premier Access, and then they have something called Premier Access One. So this is essentially just paid lightning lane. Premier Access is paid lightning lane. You pay one price and you get a fast pass essentially to one ride. So if you want to ride Hyperspace Mountain, you look on your app, you purchase it, it shows you the return time. Usually it's pretty instantaneous and you pay for it and you walk to the ride and you ride it. Now there's this Premier Access One, which is essentially like Universal's Express Pass. You pay one very big fee and then you get the Premier Access Lane option for every ride that offers. 
premier access and you don't have to make a reservation and you don't have to pick a time in your app and you don't have to pay a separate fee. You just pay one fee. And we actually thought we were going to use this at Disneyland Paris uh, because it's advertised starting at 90 euro per person. But we quickly realized that's a starting price. And when we were there during peak summer season, when all the UK schools were out of session, that it was 140 euro per person. And that was way more than I wanted to spend. And we realized that we didn't really need it. But I mean, I like that they have that option, right? So if we had been there just for one day and we had been, you know, coaster people all in all, and we wanted to ride all of the big coasters and not have a wait, that might've been worth it to me. I mean, my family's a little different because we have the younger kid who doesn't do the coasters. So we ultimately opted into using the premier access and just buying what we wanted to buy for, and we ended up buying just three attractions during the course of our three-day trip. And that worked great. And we cut the line for the really bad long line attractions. So that was fantastic. Didn't spend a ton of money. And the, the, the ride prices are somewhere between nine euro. And I think the highest is 18 euro. So about what paid lightning lane is at the Disney parks in the US, but you can pay for all of them, not just what Disney designates as a paid lightning lane versus a Genie Plus attraction. So really like that. Yeah, the variable pricing on the Premier Access one, that's very Express Pass-like. Now, what are the three attractions that you ended up buying Premier Access for? And were there any other attractions that would have been close that you might have considered buying Premier Access for but ended up standbying? Yeah, we bought for Crush's Coaster. That is the one must buy. That is their most popular attraction with the longest line. And that was a no-brainer for us. Um, that was huge. We also bought for Remy's Ratatouille Adventure because my son adores that ride. And the line was just long enough that we didn't want to wait for it at the time. I think it was 14 euro. So worth it to us. And then in our last day, we bought Buzzes, actually, which we could have found a way to ride without paying for it. But we had a limited time before before we had to leave for the airport and we saw, hey, we can squeeze in one more ride and, you know, pay just a small amount of money for it. And so, and we hadn't done it yet. So we wrote that. So yeah, I mean, definitely worth it. We could have paid for Big Thunder. We could have paid for Hyperspace Mountain, but the way we sort of timed everything, we didn't need to. My, my daughter and I actually rode Hyperspace Mountain using the single rider line. Another thing that I liked about the cut the line options at Disneyland Paris. So we were able to hack it that way. And did standby lines seem to move faster? Because I mean, with Premier Access and Premier Access 1, it just seems like a lot less people are going to be using the Lightning Lane or FastPass line or whatever, you know, you're going to call it. A lot of research has been done about how these cut the line things actually increase the standby wait time. So did standby wait times seem manageable, even though you were there during, you know, the UK holidays, like you said? Yeah, so very, very few people were using the Premier Access lanes. Like I would often walk into some of them and there wouldn't be another human being in them. I mean, that wasn't true for Crush's Coaster or things like that. But um, yeah, <laughs> because we use them as well when we use Rider Switch. And I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. So for some of those sort of second tier rides where people were not purchasing them, they were very short. So so that did help standby lines. That said, we were there, like I said, I think during the, the busiest time. I expected standby lines to be a little bit shorter than they were because a lot of people had told me, oh, they're very reasonable at Disneyland Paris. And they were a little more than I wanted to do <laughs> most of the time. So, I mean, but I do think you're right. I mean, in terms of the impact on the standby lines, it's minimal. And so that ultimately is better for everybody. All right. So tell us about uh, why Rider Switch was uh, so useful at Disneyland Paris. Is it more useful than it always is? 
Well, it's more useful than it currently is at Disney World and Disneyland. And that's because all of the old hacks that we used to be able to use like six, seven, eight, nine years ago at the U.S. parks still exist. I, I was able to combine single rider with rider switch. And this is why. The way they operate rider switch at Disneyland Paris is they give you the pass after you get off the ride not when you're getting into the queue. So what happens is you get off the ride, there's a cast member there at the exit and you say, hey, can I get a rider switch pass? So there's no baby or kid in sight, right? And they're not verifying that you have somebody. I mean, of course we, we did have somebody, so we weren't lying, but they also don't know how you rode the attraction. Did you ride it via the single rider line? They don't know that because everybody gets off the ride together. Did you ride it via the standby line? Did you ride it, ride it via, via the premier access line? So it's much more hackable. So for example, if you buy a premier access to hyperspace mountain or you ride single rider like we did, you get that rider switch pass essentially for free. So it was great. It was fantastic. And the only place we had trouble with this was Crush's Coaster. They did want to see the child at the exit because I think that's where people were lying about whether they needed rider switch or not. So that was the only place that we had to sort of verify we were eligible for rider switch. The French, way too trusting, way too way. trusting. I mean, apparently. Yeah. Uh, here's a good point. You know, this is half trip report, half analysis of Disneyland Paris. Besides Crush's Coaster, what are the attractions at Disneyland Paris that we can't experience in the U.S.? Ooh, so there's an Indiana Jones coaster. I'm trying to think. I mean, there's a lot of things that are very different. I mean, Hyperspace Mountain is is named what we know, but the ride is completely different from what we have in the U.S. parks. And Big Thunder is quite a bit different. That's my favorite Big Thunder. It's by so the way, good in the world. Yeah, it <laughs> it's is. so good. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other attractions that are unique. Help me out, Joe. I mean, my ex impression is that I, what I remember is it's not that the attractions themselves are that different. I mean, I guess Storyboat Canals was different to me when I went, but that's because I hadn't been to Disneyland before and you can do that in Disneyland. But it's different it's just, anyway. It's different anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But they're all like versions of the same thing. You know, I think now that Remy's is open in Florida, that's the main difference. But, you know, it feels very much just like a alternate version of a lot of the attractions that you know. Now, what did, did seem different to me, and I'd like to hear a little bit about before we get to you know, your next better or worse thing, is Avengers Campus. You know, How did that feel compared to California Adventure? So there are a lot of similarities. I mean, the footprint is different just because of the space they had to work with. They had a lot more room and in the Studios Park in Paris to sketch that out. They, of course, have the same Web Slingers ride. They have Another attraction in Avengers Campus at Disneyland Paris that used to be the rock and roller coaster that they've now converted into Flight Force, which is an Iron Man coaster. So kind of like what they did to Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout in Disneyland. They took an old ride, they rethemed it with a new Avengers overlay, and then put it into the, the land. So the same idea, I would say that Disneyland's ride is infinitely better. They have a PIM kitchen, not a PIM test kitchen, which is actually a table service buffet restaurant at Paris versus a quick service at uh, Disneyland. So, I mean, a lot of similarities, but, you know, a lot of the same characters. They have a Quinjet. You know, there are there are subtle differences between the two different lands. I'm actually working on an article comparing the two. So it will be coming out probably on the points guy at some point. So stay tuned for that. All right, cool. Well, we'll hear a little bit more later about that. Let's get to your first thing that you feel like Disneyland Paris does worse than the U.S. parks. Although this feels like one of those, uh, you know, maybe France overall just does it worse than the U.S. <laughs> 
So, I mean, I hate to hang cast members out to dry here, but the customer service is just not as good. The Disney magic that you get from cast members just doesn't measure up to what you get in the U.S. parks. I mean, this is a cultural difference, and I don't mean to be like an ugly American and, (laughs) you know, complain about the French being sullen or whatever. But I mean, there just wasn't that same level of cast member magic. And, and in fact, there weren't as many cast members. Like that was actually part of it. It wasn't that we had like ugly service or anything like that. It just often, there wasn't a cast member to serve. And we noticed that, especially at like the tap styles to enter the parks, you scan your own park ticket and there's not a cast member that you're handing it to and then them scanning or taking your picture and, you know, you going, you going in. I mean, there's nobody there. And that made it really inefficient because a lot of people couldn't figure out how to use the tap styles and it backed people up and it just resulted in sort of a, a worse guest experience. So, so that was one thing that I noticed. I mean, we did have a couple of little bright lights. Um, we had a cast member when we rode Phantom Manor at very late night, right before closing, who was awesome and did a bunch of creepy stuff with my kids that it was a lot of fun. So he was fully in character. So we did have occasionally little bits and pieces, but it was by far the exception rather than the rule. So that was a a negative for me. And I, I didn't feel like I got that magic from the human interactions, although I did feel the magic from the physical setting at Disneyland Paris. It's beautiful. So you do get it in other ways, I guess. Yeah, I remember eating at their Diamond Horseshoe equivalent. I can't remember what it's called, but I just remember going in there and I I felt like there was no one in there, you know, in terms of cast. And so maybe you're right. Maybe they staff at a different ratio. And then, yeah, of course, there are personality differences as well. You just reminded me, though, okay, big difference. Phantom Manor instead of Haunted Mansion, uh, eternal regret. I didn't get to go on it. You know, how did that compare? Oh, it was great. I really liked it. I mean, there, there are a lot of similarities it was it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It was creepier. Everything in France was creepier. That was <laughs> one thing I kind of liked. I mean, you know, the Tower of Terror has like the little creepy girl. Um, so this has. Oh like, yeah, I didn't get to go on Tower of Terror either. Oh, so, oh yeah, everything's so, a little creepier. That's that's good to know. A little bit macabre in France. So that was I, I like that. I was actually worried my son was going to be scared by Haunted Mansion, but he's just weird enough. He loves like zombies and stuff like that. So that did not creep him out. But I think it might tip in to the too scary for some younger kids, um, American kids who are used to sort of the lighter atmosphere of the U.S. haunted mansions. Great point. Great point. All right. Let's get back to what Disneyland Paris does better. And this is a huge one. Big point of contention in America right now. Huge, huge, huge park hopping. Disneyland Paris allows you to park hop whenever you want. There is no time restriction (laughs) and it's just so freeing. I I don't know why we can't get to that in the U.S. parks. I mean, it's definitely about money. It's definitely about staffing. I mean, maybe I guess Disneyland Paris staffs lower already, so they have efficiencies of their own. But I mean, I think the real reason for it is it's because there's such a differential between the two parks at Disneyland Paris. I mean, the Studios Park is still weak, even with the addition of Avengers Campus and to make people stay in that park until one o'clock or two o'clock would probably cause some discontent. So better just to let guests flow freely between the two of them. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see what will happen. I mean, it seems to me that they could do the same at Disneyland, like right away, just let people go hop back and forth because with the parks being in such close proximity, it's going to work itself out, right? It's going <laughs> to, but apparently not, not yet. 
Yeah, I definitely think in terms the proximity makes such a big difference. Although, you know, honestly, you would you could also make the argument that the distance in Disney World shouldn't have it make that much of a difference anyway, because even if you try to leave to park hop at 11, you're not even going to get to your next park at 12 anyway. So, yes, open up the gates, Disney, and let us park hop once again freely. We will jump through all your other hoops if you let us. We will forgive a lot if you let us park hop Disney World. Exactly. And, you know, and Disneyland. Interestingly, Joe, we only park hop once and we parked park hopped after 2 p.m. <laughs> so we did what Disney wanted us to do anyway, I guess. Um, when you remove the restrictions, then like people. <laughs> we made... just want the illusion of freedom, exactly. Disney. That's all we want. Just give it to us. Okay. Exactly. All right. I'm really interested in the next thing you have for what Disneyland Paris does worse. Tell us about it, Leslie. Yeah, they do on-property hotels worse. And I was kind of complaining about this leading into the trip (laughs) quite a lot. And I think a lot of folks have heard my diatribes against hotels that supposedly cater to families, but only have two double beds. Like that's not a reasonable place for families of four to sleep, at least not for me and my American sensibilities. And so every hotel at Disneyland Paris, that's what they have for rooms that sleep for two double beds. And that was a no-go for our family. So we had to ultimately get two rooms, which is what drove us into the moderate level, the Sequoia Lodge, just in terms of price and how much time we knew we would be spending in the hotels. And then that got us Sequoia Lodge, (laughs) which was not in good shape at all. And I think I said on my Instagram stories, or maybe I said this in DMs to people, what Disneyland Paris considers a moderate is not as nice as what a value looks like at Walt Disney World right now. It felt so tired. The carpet felt like it should have been replaced five years ago. The, you know, we were ended up in kind of a basement room. I mean, it was partially underground and it was dank and, and dark and it just looked like it needed a renovation years and years ago. And it's clear that Disneyland Paris is starting to do that renovation. I mean, part of the reason we were in that hotel is that the main Disneyland hotel is closed right now for renovations, which I'm sure is not what Disneyland Paris wanted during the 30th anniversary with to have their flagship hotel closed. And they did just renovate Hotel New York and made it into the Art of Marvel Hotel. And people are saying that that hotel is quite nice. But again... It only has two double beds, and I was not about to pay eight or nine hundred dollars a night for a room that had two double beds. That was ridiculous to me. So I don't care how nice it is; that's not nice. That's not a nice experience for our family to sleep in. And so, anyway, that was my <laughs> kind of complaint about these hotels. They were tired. They needed renovations a while ago. They were overpriced for what they were. And then ultimately, I think the distance is a little far for me. I mean, the Disneyland Hotel is right by the entrance to the parks, but of course, that wasn't an option for us. And the next closest hotel is the Art of Marvel Hotel. And I would consider that a farther walk than the Disneyland Hotel is at Disneyland in Anaheim. So, I mean, not a ton, but a few extra minutes. So when you're paying that kind of money, that's a long walk. And then we were an extra like two or three minutes beyond that ourselves. So I I like more of a 10 to 15 minute walk. And it was more like a 15 to 20 minute walk. Yeah, you have to walk through the downtown Disney equivalent. I can't remember what it's called in Disneyland Paris, but uh, it felt like that is also bigger than the one in Disneyland that you have to walk through when you're at Disneyland. And then you have to walk through the Disneyland Hotel. So you kind of have like more steps to get through 
to ultimately where Main Street USA starts. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. I stayed at Newport Beach Club, Bay Club. I don't know. It's the beach club equivalent. I can't remember. I think it's treated as a moderate as well. Um, and yeah, it was fine. But yeah, I don't remember it really making a huge impression on me. I mean, it was nice. But um, other than the big ship in the pool, which is kind of a inferior version of Stormalong Bay at Yacht and Beach Club at Walt Disney World, there's not much I remember about that resort. So I totally hear you that the on-property hotels just don't seem to be the same. They're not as expensive as they are in the U.S., but um, still not that great. All right, let's get back to the positive. What is another thing that Disneyland Paris does better than the U.S. parks? So Disneyland Paris does coasters just better. I mean, we've already kind of mentioned some of them. Hyperspace Mountain is a real coaster at Disneyland Paris, inversions, things like that. It's really awesome. Big Thunder is a next level of intensity over what we have in the U.S. parks. You've got Crush's Coaster, which is truly, truly awesome. And you can kind of see that where the seeds were planted for things and ended up in Cosmic Rewind. I loved seeing that, having now just you know, been to see Cosmic Rewind and and see, you know, how it inspired what we see now in the U.S. parks. And then you've got other thrill rides. I mean, Flight Force, we did ultimately did not like. (laughs) It was the old rock and roller coaster because it was kind of one of those coasters that now feels dated that like hurts your head because the technology is better now for smoother coasters. So I didn't like that one, but you know, it was a, a legit coaster. And you've got that Indiana Jones coaster. You just had a lot more thrill rides on average if you really wanted to do that. So so you really could do the bigger theme park experience with the coasters or the little kid stuff or a combination of the two in a way that you kind of can't quite do at the U.S. parks. Like you can stitch together enough coasters over the course of a week at Walt Disney World or over the course of several days, but you, how many can you really get in in a single day? Yeah. Now, I don't think Crush's Coaster was open or I didn't go on it when uh, I was there back in 2019. What is the ride vehicle like? And I mean, I assume the premise is you're surfing on the whatever Riptide or that current is called. But, uh, you know, what are there inversions? You know, what kind of coaster is it? So you are riding in an upside down turtle shell and you're back to back. So you're two and two. And so it does kind of spin in the way that Cosmic Rewind does. Um, it, it pivots, I guess, is more accurate. And you see different things. Yeah, yeah, you are surfing along whatever that that current is. I can't remember what it's called in the Nemo movies. And you're seeing different characters. So there's visuals as you go along this current and you're twisting and turning. And there's no inversions, but uh, it is quite thrilling, kind of like Cosmic Rewind is in terms of the ultimate effect. And it's just fun. It's just kind of a joyous ride. I enjoy the characters and, and you know, definitely a lot of fun. Is it outside and do, you, I mean, I haven't heard any motion sickness issues in the vein of Cosmic Rewind about this one. No, it's inside like Cosmic Rewind. I wouldn't say there's as many pivots or spins as Cosmic Rewind. And I think that's probably why you don't have the motion sickness issues. But good question. Um, I don't yeah, know. I guess if the been real that question is, did you see trash cans when you got them? No, and I did not see yeah, anybody so. getting sick. It, it, it didn't feel, I mean, it's hard for me to compare because I was riding Crush's Coaster with my daughter who was totally into it versus riding Cosmic Rewind with my son who I was hoping like wasn't going to pass out from fear. So I was kind of riding it with a different mindset, but it did feel to me like Cosmic Rewind was a little 
little more intense or at least vertigo inducing versus uh, Crush's Coaster. All right. So let's get to the food. Why is the food at Disneyland Paris worse than the U.S. parks? Well, I mean, this is always the line that you hear. The food at Disneyland Paris is so terrible. And so I was expecting really to go in and for it to be inedible, for me to eat things and be like, this is disgusting. And it wasn't that bad. I mean, it it felt like the first thing we had was a quick service restaurant when we ate at the, I forget the name of the restaurant, but it's the version of like Village House, Red Rose Tavern, the German restaurant in Fantasyland. And it was totally adequate. It was theme park quick service food. Um, it was tasty. It wasn't disgusting. It wasn't, you know, dry or overcooked or whatever. It was fine. And so we, we were like, okay, this food isn't going to be as bad as we think it is. But then there's lots of little weak points that start to show themselves. So my, my husband and my daughter at the very end of the trip did have a table service restaurant at their equivalent of the Blue Bayou that was affirmatively bad. And when you're paying table service, high-end prices, Blue Bayou prices, and the food is bad, that's not good. So, you know, you don't mind it when you're paying quick service prices. If something's kind of, mm, it's okay. That was unfortunate. But the other thing, it was just, there was a lack of variety. You couldn't find a lot of different snacks and a lot of different things to try. I mean, they don't have sort of the Instagram food culture that we have in the U.S. where they're, you know, bringing out a lot of new things and, and the options are just really limited. And then the other thing we found is the restaurants are really limited. A lot of them are only open during the middle of the day, like for the lunch hour, and then they close at like five. So there's not as many places to eat dinner if you don't have a table service reservation. So it kind of forces you into a couple of limited quick service options or forces you over to into Disney Village. So we had to work kind of hard to find a place that we wanted to eat that we all, you know, were interested in the cuisine, especially at the dinner hour. So that was a little bit of a bummer. So it's more about like the food scene in general, just is not as much of a priority as it is in the U S and then that sort of radiates out to cause a lot of little logistical frustrations. Yeah. If memory serves, I don't think that's, you know, I know in the U S parks after the pandemic restaurants started closing earlier and things like that. But if memory serves, this was an issue that we had all the way back in 2019. I remember we had to like randomly grab some food at downtown Disney on the way back to our hotel because we couldn't find anything in the park. So yeah, definitely an issue. Not having food available is really tough, especially when you're traveling with family. So a good point there. All right, so let's end on a high note. Uh, what is the final thing you have that you feel like Disneyland Paris, Euro Disney, uh, just kidding, is doing better than the U.S. parks right now? Well, right now they're doing anniversaries better. It's the 30th at Disneyland Paris. It's a low bar, Leslie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a low bar. But they're doing the 30th. Disney World has the 50th, which I just experienced earlier this summer. And the 30th is looking nicer than what's going on in Florida right now. One thing they've done for the 30th is they've created these metal sculptures that are different characters. And they've put them in all over Main Street. So this is like the answer to the gold statues that the 50th has, right? There are these 30 um, metal structures, but they're painted and they move. Um, I don't know what they're called, but um, we call them like whirly gigs in North Carolina because there's an artist who makes something like this in North Carolina who's well-known. So they were beautiful. They were absolutely beautiful. I have some videos of them on my Instagram. So that really just lit up like all of the hub and main street area to see those. And they have a special parade that was a lot of fun that we only got to see a, a, a 
reduced version of it. I don't know if it was because of the heat that day, if they sort of limited it, but it was great. And then the main event, there's a drone show (laughs) over the castle before the fireworks nightly as part of the 30th. And it was awesome. They used drones to make that 30, the number 30 that turns into the Mickey head over the castle. And again, video of that a little bit on my Instagram stories and the highlight. And that was just awe-inspiring. And we need drones in the U.S. parks. So well done, Disneyland Paris. I just felt like it was a real anniversary. And in part, it's a smaller park. So it's easier to make all of it celebrate than, you know, smaller resort, two parks. But it, it felt a little more joyful than did the version in Florida. But Leslie, with Magic Band Plus now, if you go up to one of the gold statues, it'll make a little noise at you. I mean, what, what says 50th anniversary more than that? If you've if your magic band has any charge left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll have to talk about that in another episode when we get a chance to try out Magic Band Plus. But yeah, that drones show looks awesome and I, I do feel like it is tech that I mean it, the tech is there, so I don't know if it's like no fly zone rules or whatever, but it feels like these are the kinds of things that both Disneyland and Disney World should have to really make the parks uh even more special than um they are right now. All right. So um, before we finish things up with Disney do's or don'ts, I just want to ask overall, what are some impressions you had about Disneyland Paris? I want to hear your opinion on the castle um, and also just comparing it to the U.S. parks. Do you feel like they're worthy of being in the same conversation, you know, worth a visit for people? Um, Just tell us your general thoughts. So Castle was the best castle I've seen so far. It's awesome. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, no question. And I think it is different enough that it's worth a trip. I mean, if if you don't care about Disney, then, you know, no, just go to one of the U.S. parks or something like that. But I assume everybody who's listening to this podcast cares somewhat about Disney. And it is different enough. It's fun to see how, you know, certain things translate into a different country, into a different culture and what carries over or what doesn't. And just, it's fun to see the different ways in which Imagineers are thinking about these characters and how that played out over time. I mean, it was built 20 years after Disney World. So, you know, what did they learn from things that didn't work in California and Florida and how did they implement implement that in Paris? So I thought it was really cool as a Disney geek to see you know, you could see, oh, this was smart. They have this ride vehicle has three rows instead of two. It increases the capacity right away. Great. Well done. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Uh, if you're a Disney fan, I think it's definitely worth checking out. It's probably the easiest of the non-US based Disney parks to visit. And so for big Disney fans, I definitely think Disneyland Paris is worth checking out. And then of course, if you're just, you know, if you're listening to this podcast because you just want to visit Disney once in your life, well, you should probably go to Disneyland or Disney World, uh, depending on which one is closer to you. All right, Leslie, let let us indeed end with our Disneyland Paris do or don't for the week. What do you got for us? So Disney do, do really study a map before you go to Disneyland Paris, because I found the navigation to be pretty confusing and you'll feel like you're at a Disney park, but then you'll feel that everything's off kilter. And especially over in um, 
Frontierland, Adventureland, there are a lot of little meandering paths that go in weird ways. And it's really hard to sort of get your bearings because the castle's not exactly in the same place as it is in the U.S. parks relevant, you know, relative to those lands. So I think it's really important to take a look at the map. And we did beforehand, but even still, we kind of got turned around and lost, especially at night. It's really hard at night to, to navigate that section of the park. So know what you're getting into, but then use those paths. Once you figure them out, like it's great because there are ways to escape crowds. And then there's the arcades that go behind the shops on Main Street that are quick ways in and out of the parks during crowded times. So once you know your way around, uh, you can really dodge the crowds thanks to how it's been built and laid out. Yeah, I was going to say that those paths in a lot of ways feel like a feature, not a bug to me. They're only a bug when you're trying to get from point A to B as fast as possible. But in terms of Disney parks to just wander around. All those random paths are very nice to just explore and get a feel for the park and just the ambiance. So uh, I do really appreciate those. Although, yes, uh, definitely got lost as well. All right. Well, thank you, Leslie, for sharing your Disneyland Paris experience with us. It sounded really awesome and jealous that you got to take that trip. Um, we will indeed be talking about Disney Cruise Line in Alaska in a future episode, so it'll be your turn to be jealous. Everyone, if you have any questions about Disneyland Paris, you can email leslietripswithtikes at gmail.com or email the podcast, dinnydeciphered at gmail.com. Let us know if you've been to Disneyland in Paris, any of your thoughts, at www.deciphered on Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, Disney Deciphered. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And other than that, Leslie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and I will see you underneath the castle at Disneyland Paris, which we didn't even talk about. Thanks, Joe. 